And there's a speech that I know well. It's told by Henry V, I'll tell. A version that relates to us, not war. For he who sheds his sweat with me will be my friend eternally. From this day till we both embrace the void. void quite calming actually it's like this time the xanax took me your sense of self is crumbling and it's taking the void down with it it's like i'm in a black void trying to reach the new story this concept of morality is a very interesting human characteristic what is real how do you define real if you're talking about what you can feel what you can smell you can taste and see. Warning, this podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 99 of Embrace the Void, where the content warning light is always on. I'm your host, Aaron, and joining me this week is Dave Warnock, who is engaged in a project that some folks may find hard to hear about. Rather than attempting some profundity, I'm just going to say this. Uh, the conversation was hard to have, but I think it's why we're here. Um, it's no gaslighting, so let's feel some feels. My guest this week is Dave Warnock. He is currently engaged in a project called Dying Out Loud. Dave, would you like to say hi to the void? Hello, void. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> it's always a good check on how engaged someone is in the process. So, Dave, just by way of a little bit of introduction, you've done a, a lot of interviews on, on podcasts recently, some, some compatriots of mine like Life After God and How to Heretic. Um, and I think I want to just mention earlier that people should definitely go and listen to those other conversations and that um, we're going to try a little bit here to cover slightly different ground than those so that people can, you know, because there's just so much interesting stuff in what you're you're dealing with here. So, but maybe to get us started, could you give us a brief overview of, of what is dying out loud? Yeah, it's kind of a, a it's just a phrase that I think I've um, embraced just to talk about the subject no one wants to talk about, which is dying. And the reason I'm talking about it is because I am dying. Um, and we all can say that, you know, we all, you know, I've had people say, oh yeah, we're all dying. But the reality is I've got a, a real definite uh, time frame on mine with this diagnosis of ALS. So it kind of puts it into a different focus than the typical human. Um, so what I'm doing is talking about looking at death from the standpoint of an atheist, from the viewpoint of an atheist, as opposed to what I used to be as an evangelical Christian, and not avoiding that subject and not running from it and not hiding from it, um, mm -hmm. and just saying, okay, I've got this terminal illness, the doctors have told me I've got X number of years, which statistically are three to five years, um, and, and, uh, so now how do I, how do I face that? What do I do with the time I have left? How do I approach the subject of dying? Um, and, and I guess concurrently with that, how do I approach the subject of living? 
with the terminal illness because that's really the bigger issue is is what am I doing to make life uh, fulfilling and gratifying in the face of a terminal illness? Yeah, there's there's just so much there. Um, maybe let's try to take yeah. it a little bit from the beginning. When did you realize that there was something wrong to begin with? Yeah, that's it's always tricky with ALS is because the symptoms are are, are unexpected. You know, mm-hmm. with a lot of things you have, you you kind of have a like a sharp pain in your stomach or a headache or you pass out or there's bleeding or some marked event that you think, oh, wow, something's wrong with my body. With with ALS, it's always this tricky little little things that you kind of wonder about. Mine started in my fingers and hands. Um, other ALS people I've, learned, I've met started in their mouth where they had a hard time swallowing. Their speech began to be slurred. Mm-hmm. And others start, started in their feet or legs. But mine, I started noticing that I was having trouble and this was over a year ago now, um, looking back, you know, at the time I didn't think much about it, but had trouble forming certain letters and, and numbers when, with my insurance business I was doing and filling out forms and things. I noticed some, some letters. It's probably the very first thing I noticed was the problem with forming letters and numbers and writing. And then little things, things that required strength or uh, dexterity in my fingers mm-hmm began to be difficult and then my hands and then my arms and so that's when I noticed that and then there were some uh, pointed events like couldn't grip a bowling ball when I was trying to bowl and I couldn't swing a golf club mm-hmm. and things like things like that that were uh, um, a period a, a notable event where I said okay something's really wrong here this is not just me getting carpal tunnel syndrome or getting soft in my old age. This is something wrong with my hands. And of course, then you Google stuff and all kinds of shit comes up. So Google, the internet can be our best friend and our worst enemy. Yeah. Had you (laughs) dealt with any serious health problems prior to this in your life? No, I've been really healthy. I had a, a really, I had a stroke about a little over three years ago that came out of nowhere and they checked. It was a, it was a mild one. The symptoms did not last. Um, but I went and checked out. They had me. They checked out everything in my body, and I was completely healthy. And they had no understanding of why I had a stroke. But other than that, I've never been on medications for anything other than acid reflux. Um, so I've I've been a healthy specimen, except for these mm-hmm. weird neurological things that keep popping up. How did you? I'm curious. Um, given the state of the American healthcare system, did you? delay going to the doctor in any way or did you go pretty quickly once you started to notice there was an issue <laughs> yeah it's funny you should bring up the american health system because that's <laughs> that's that's exactly what entered my mind uh and with these symptoms that were going on through last summer and fall noticing things and and then in my mind i knew that if i went to a doctor he would refer me to a neurologist who would refer mm-hmm. me to some other specialist, and so on, and so on, and so on, and I would have tests, and each of these things would cost money, mm-hmm. and my insurance, my insurance plan would be uh, reaching my deductible really quick. So I thought, you know what? Let me get this done in one calendar year, and that's why I waited till January. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I ask this, and cards on the table here is because um, I have a vested interest in stories of this sort. My um, wife Lou. 
uh, five years ago was diagnosed with acute myeloid leukemia. And we mm. went through some very serious treatment and, and recovery. And she's she's currently in remission, but we're still, you know, one, once you're even even once you're in remission, right, you still have a host of health issues that come from having gone through the treatment and you need to be getting regular checkups. And, you know, we have health insurance through the exchange. So we are sort of in this kind of absurd bind where, uh, you know, we have to yeah. think about these kinds of questions of like, well, well, do you pay for genetic screenings? Um, when those genetic screenings may just, you know, lead to, well, then you have to get the surgeries and all these other things. And it's, uh, it's, it's very rough. So you, you, you were dealing with that. It is. Yeah. And I knew that I would, you know, um, luckily that I get my insurance through the exchange as well, because I'm an, I'm self-employed mm-hmm. or I was. And, um, luckily I had a plan this year that was substantially better than last year in that I had a lower deductible and a lower out-of-pocket max. So I blew through that in the first week. Right. <laughs> I just, boom, here we go. So the good part of that is I'm done with that, and so anything I do now is all covered. Um, and, and so, you know, but I knew that once I went to the first doctor, they would say, well, we're going to need to do some tests and blood tests and MRIs and EMGs and EKGs and all the letters. And so I just thought, well, I'm just going to wait. The good thing about that is looking back, it wouldn't have made any difference. Uh It's not like, oh, my God, if if we'd have caught this earlier, we could have done X, Y, Z. No, wouldn't have mattered if they would have diagnosed it a year ago. It is what it is. There is no cure. There is no treatment. You have ALS, you're going to die. That's the doctor's perspective. Mm -hmm. And and this gets to one of the sort of philosophical questions that I think um, comes to the forefront in in your project. We have in, you know, we have this hypothetical in philosophy of asking people, you know, would you prefer to know the exact moment when you're going to die or would you not? Right. And Mm. I think how people answer that question can change a lot over the course of their lives and as a result of things they're experiencing. Did you ever think about that question before your diagnosis? No, you know, and I think that that's a lot of what I'm talking about in my project, as you call it, dying out loud is um, the subject of death and dying, because it's, it's just one of these things we don't talk about. Mm -hmm. And even as Christians, we didn't talk about it because a death was considered the Bible called it the 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 last enemy. Mm-hmm. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death, and so it's not viewed as a natural phenomenon or a natural byproduct of life. It's viewed as an enemy that must de- be defeated and destroyed and avoided. Mm-hmm. And that's just a preposterous way to look at death. It's just ludicrous to think of it that way because it's something we're all going to experience. And the reason I think we don't like to talk about it is because we don't know what's on the other side of it. And if we cut to the core, that's why religion was created to begin with, is to try to create some answers to questions that we don't have answers to. Mm-hmm. And so we we want to feel a little bit better about something. So we create this whole mythological story about a life after mm-hmm. death, which I consider to be complete and utter bullshit. Um, but but we don't we don't know what to do with death, so we avoid it or deny it or or treat it as an enemy to be defeated. Whereas if we just talk about it and say, you know what, it's something I'm going to experience. So 
And why don't I get about living so that when that death comes, I've lived the best life I could possibly live. So, so in, in that sense, I'd rather know when it's going to happen. And would you have rather known so sooner? So that I'm not wasting. Well, probably not. <laughs> uh, that's, that really is a good philosophical question. We could probably talk all day about <laughs> that's that. That's what we're here for. Um, I, I know it's great. It's a great question. Um, it's hard to really answer that. Now, what I do know now is that I consider this diagnosis a bit of a gift in that sense, mm -hmm. because while I don't want to quit living because I love life and I want to soak every bit of it I can up, what this has enabled me to do is to cut away all the peripheral stuff and focus on what matters and not get caught up in the mundane and trivial, which if we look at our life in totality, most of us do get caught up in the trivial and the mundane. We do get frustrated with things that don't really matter. And we do get, we, we waste a lot of time because we don't really, because we don't, we don't think we're going to run out mm -hmm. of it because we don't, we don't ever think about dying. So we think the way that I'm living now is going to go on forever for a long time. And I've got plenty of time. I've got plenty of years. Well, what if you don't, you know, what are you going to do with your life right now if you don't have plenty of time? Mm -hmm. So that's really the, that's really the big issue in my forefront right now. So what are the things that got pushed into the foreground of your consciousness as a result of this, right? What are the things that you found ended up having real value for you? What has always had value for me is, is people. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I find looking back on my life, even when I was an evangelical Christian and as, as a pastor, and, and the people that I, that I worked, that I pastored or that I was in church with, if you interviewed them today, most of them would tell you that Dave always just loved people. He would, you know, he was not the pastor. He, he would say, they would say he, he was more of a people person than a pulpit person, if you know what I mean. So... I, I while I did the teaching and the preaching and all the stuff, my focus was on just being with people. And so when I let Christianity go, I realized, wow, that's still who I am. That's who I've always been. So I value relationships. I value quality time spent with people that you love. So since that's always been a core value of mine, when I got this diagnosis, that became all altogether my focus, other than traveling and seeing places in the world that I want to see, my ultimate focus is to just simply be present and be be true with the people that I have in my life and to spend as much time with them as I can. And that means doing things of significance with them, which which means being present, mm -hmm. being in the room, being face to face, talking, laughing, crying living together. And so that's really what I've, I've borne down on, if you will, uh, as a, as a focal point. And, and it's become mm -hmm. that much more beautiful and precious to me than it ever was. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, before we talk a little bit about the, the, cause I mean, I, I, I like that you talk about a lot of the positive, and I feel like people in these situations often feel drawn to expressing that. I'm curious, do you have any feelings, I mean, that you would care to express that are of the more negative nature? Do you sometimes feel like you are compelled to 
sort of talk in largely positive terms about what you're experiencing? I mean, is there is there anger or uh, other other feelings in there that you feel like you have to kind of gloss over a little bit? Um, yeah, there's all kinds of feelings. Uh, and, and I don't really feel like I have to gloss over them. Mm-hmm. Um, the people that are close to me, which would be my closest friends and, and my girlfriend and, and my, my son, um, I, I don't, I don't hold back from anyone, my feelings. I'm fairly, I'm fairly transparent, but I'm, I'm also, and I've learned this in this, in this new journey, I've, I've gotten to know, uh, a lot of people in the ALS community. It's, it's a club that no one wants to join, but we we're, I'm now, I'm now a member. Um, and, uh, people are either negative or positive. I think mm. I, I really do believe it's, it's kind of a, a, a mark in life. You, you're either bent toward the positive or you're bent toward the negative. And I've always been bent toward the positive. So for me, it's been easy to just focus on that, talk about that. But that said, there is a lot of negative. And there are days when I'm like, I'll be honest, today was just, I, I couldn't get, I, I couldn't get going. My energy was down. My, I was tired. And that's, that's a mark of this disease. You're just tired all the time because your muscles, the, the littlest things you do, everything you do requires way more effort than, than it, it does for you, you, the people that don't mm-hmm. have it. And so the, the opening a door can be just, okay, that just expended a hell of a lot of energy and I'm going to have to sit down now, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and it can be discouraging. It can be draining. And, and, you know, sometimes you wake up and you just think, what the hell, why do I even need to get out of bed? What's the point? I'm just going to die. And you start, you know, going down that pity party spiral. And for me, that's why it's been so important for me to have people in my life that I value, that I'm present with, that I'm engaged with, that I'm spending time with. Cause if I didn't, at, at some level, there is no point to even get out of bed. You're just, you know, why? Why? What's the? I'm just going to die. Let me just lay here and watch Andy Griffith all mm-hmm. day. You know, what's the point? When you're, yeah. but mm-hmm. it, no, I'm just curious. When no, you're engaging with your friends, does it feel different? Does the topic matter feel different? Does it feel like it, there's a sort of, uh, um you know, a, a specific liminal kind of state to what you're engaging in now? Or does it ever feel like you can sort of just forget and feel natural in some way? Yeah, I think it's a mix of all mm-hmm. that. I think, you know, people are, it's one of those things you're kind of aware of. It's it's there hanging in the, in the like a, like sitting on the patio, there's an umbrella over mm-hmm. you. And, and there's this umbrella and it's ALS and it's just hanging over you. But you're still sitting on the patio and you're having drinks and conversation and laughter with friends, so you don't think about the umbrella. But every now and then you glance up and you, oh yeah, that umbrella's there. Mm-hmm. So in the course of conversations, that's how it'll be. We'll be talking and and I I don't you know like I said I don't because I have ALS I can joke about it. Mm-hmm. Now you can't, but I can. <laughs> so. I'll be like, we'll be out having drinks with friends and I'll, you know, say, Hey guys, let's, um, yeah, let me get another drink. And, and by the way, I'm not buying this, right? Cause you guys aren't going to make a dying man buy drinks, are you? 
And of, co- of course, I've shamed them into buying me drinks, and I, I don't apologize for that at all. Um, and I'll joke about shit like that, and, and they'll laugh, and, and, and like of the girlfriend the other night, we were getting ready to go out, and I said, hey, you want to see my ALS dance? And so I started dancing around with my arms hanging limp at my <laughs> side, and, and she laughed. She broke into laughter and said, oh, no, you can't do that. You can't do that. Stop it. But she couldn't stop herself from laughing. <laughs> so it's this ever-present thing. But if we don't laugh about it, it's going to be so heavy and so daunting of a subject that it would it would drive us all into this morbidity, if that's mm-hmm. a word, of just of just not even being able to experience life on any level, and I'm not gonna, I'm not willing to mm-hmm. do that. I get the impression you had somewhat of a sardonic sense of humor before this, Has <laughs> yeah. it sort of driven right, that into overdrive, yeah. perhaps. Oh yeah, hyperdrive. We're in hyperdrive yeah. now. Yeah. Um. So, what what other behaviors have changed for you? Right. I mean, there's the, the obvious ones that you've talked about on those shows, like you quit your you quit your day job, right? You're doing the traveling stuff. Yeah. Are you? I mean, like. Are you are you taking up substances that you have not experienced before? Like, how far are you going with this? What you have left time, kind of thing. Well, I'm going. I'm, I'm not doing. Uh, and there's a mixture of information out there about mm-hmm. ALS, and it's a bit frustrating because some people say eat everything you can because you got to keep your weight up. Other people say you know eat supplements, do vitamins. There's a a mixture of of information and misinformation and bad information and whatever. So we spend a lot of time trying to figure that out. Uh, we've gotten connected with the ALS community, and and that being people who have it, we're looking we're looking at there are some treatments mm-hmm. that are being done in other countries, Israel and Korea, that are not approved yet in in the U.S. We went to an ALS protest uh, of the FDA a few weeks ago in Washington D.C. There's a treatment, a stem cell treatment that's in Uh, in phase two and three Mm -hmm. in clinical trials. And we're trying to get the FDA to to fast track this. It's not something like blood pressure or erectile dysfunction that you can take another 10 years on. You know, people are dying while you're shuffling papers. So we're, you know, involved in things like that. Uh, But on a daily level, it's a matter of Managing my energy level, managing my activity level. I have a lot of activity going on in terms of doing podcasts and scheduling speaking engagements and traveling mm-hmm. uh, to to those things, as well as leisure travel. Um, so I'm trying to I'm trying to find the balance between, and this is the way I I put it. Um, when I first got the diagnosis, I, I had a decision to make. I could either spend all of my time and energy traveling around the country and the world looking for this cure, that treatment, this supplement, that thing that's going to extend my life a little longer. Or I could simply say, this is what I have, and now I'm going to live all the life I can live until I can't live anymore, and then we'll take care Mm -hmm. of things. So I can either spend all my time trying to stay alive, or I can spend all my time living Mm -hmm. And what I'm trying to do is is strike the balance between that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was I was sort of almost more curious about like the living side of the substances rather than the like staying alive side. Like, you know, you mentioned going out for drinks, and I, I guess I, I it came to mind because 
you know, I, I was thinking about your deconversion and that, like, when people leave the faith, they often take up some vices that might they might not have taken up before. And I was wondering if this was maybe in some ways similar, where you feel a kind of newfound freedom to take up any kind of vices that you might have been, you know, resisting before because of health reasons or something like that. No, I did all the vices even before okay. this. I didn't. I, I wasn't. I wasn't holding. I wasn't holding back from anything. Well, that's good. Um, no, yeah, it is good. No, I think when I left religion behind, I realized that life is short. You know, I, I was pretty old. I'm. I'm a lot older. I was. I was in my late fifties, mid fifties, late fifties before I left Christianity behind, and so, and then, and then a few years, uh, I stayed in a marriage that wasn't working because she still was a believer, is a believer, and all of that. I, yeah, I, my other podcast, I talk about that a lot. But And it's only been the last three years or so that I finally was living my full, true, authentic life. And that being doing the things I want to do the way I want to do them, with who I want to do them, and all those things. So I wasn't holding back from anything in that sense. I was living by my mantra, which is carpe the fucking diem. <laughs> Uh-huh. Um, I was living, I was living that really hard the last couple of years. And so when I got this diagnosis in January of this year, or no, it was February, I'm sorry, February 26, that it didn't change anything in, in the terms of how I'm living my life. It just kind of amplified it. It's like I was driving along the highway at 60 and I said, oh, hell no, let's put this thing down to 90 yeah. now. That's kind of how it is. Right. So so let's talk about some of the things that you've been doing then since since you put it the pedal to the metal there. Uh right. <laughs> you you went to the Amalfi Coast, I believe. Yes, just turned returned from Italy a couple of weeks ago. Um that was actually a trip I had planned well before I got the diagnosis. So I was really glad that I had that planned. Um since before that, since the diagnosis, what I've done a lot of is I've gotten some trips planned that I'm like, I'm going to speak in Minneapolis in a couple mm-hmm. of weeks. And then in the fall, I'll be up in New Hampshire and East Tennessee and then a Cincinnati and a Philadelphia thing. And in between that, just traveling on for leisure with, uh, with my girlfriend mm-hmm. that is, is a fairly new relationship of, of about five months. So, um, in fact, I'm at her place in, in Charlotte, North Carolina right now. And, um, so we're doing some trips. She had a trip planned to Croatia and Greece this fall that I'm going to tag along with since since I'm retired now. <laughs> um, and so it's just a matter of uh, just being focused on doing things that that I find valuable and important. So it's a mixture of of talking about things like dying out loud and living your best life, as well as seeing places that I want to see that I. And I kind of have to get onto it. If if there's no treatments that I get access to, then my mobility and my functionality is going to be compromised within the next year mm-hmm. or two. And and so my ability to travel and go and do things and even go and speak in places is is probably going to be compromised. Uh, well, it's not probably; it will right. be, and it's just a matter of of how quickly and and when that happens. Boy, there's so many things I want to ask you about. Partly, part of it is that like I just want to um, enjoy with you the Amalfi Coast. I loved visiting there when I went. Oh, 
And oh my god, it was yeah. Amazing. Was it something that you would have been thinking about before this? Is like a place you'd always wanted to go, or you just like find me the prettiest place in the world to go to immediately? <laughs> well, it's funny. I uh, I went last year on a trip uh, because my my friend and his wife were going to be going to Barcelona. Mm-hmm. And then I found out my son and his wife were going to be in Barcelona the same week. This was uh, this about the first week of June of last year. So I had always wanted to see the Mediterranean my whole life, and I'd never been there. And I said, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going. So I booked that trip last year, and I saw the Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. And then not long after getting back, I was watching a movie, and it had these scenes that uh, of this this scenery that was breathtaking. And I paused the movie. And I looked up where it was filmed, and it was the Tyrrhenian Sea off the coast mm-hmm. of Italy, which which is uh, uh, outside off off of mm-hmm. Amalfi. And I said, "Oh my God, I've got to go there. I've got to go see that." And so within a week, I had a trip booked mm-hmm. to to Italy. And so it was just something I said, "You know what? I'm not gonna I'm not gonna de- deny myself this. This is what I want to do." So like I said, I was kind of driving that car down that highway before this, and I just. All I did was was pick up the pace quite a yeah. bit. Yeah. What did you What did you love most about Amalfi? I, I, it sounds like you stayed in, and possibly even the same hotel that we stayed in, one of those cliffside uh, ones. Did yeah, you really? oh yeah, oh my Where god, it's like, up the uh-huh. hill. Yeah, you, yeah. We I, I can't remember the name of the hotel, but it literally dropped straight down. We were we were in um, one that was near the place, the grotto or whatever it's called, where like JFK and them used to go and party, and there's like. A guy oh, who lives yeah. there now with like two goats, um, who like owns the place, <laughs> and that that old guy would come to the bar at the hotel that we were staying at and have um, uh, limoncello with the with the owner. Now, that was the Emerald. Yeah, Grotto? I believe so. Yeah, I think you were up the coast just a little bit a from, little bit from okay. me because I, I I know where that was, and it was just we were just we were down south a little bit closer to amalfi did you sample the limoncello oh so good right of course (laughs) yes yes no it was i think my favorite part of that you know we went to rome we went to naples we went to amalfi and positano and uh, the isle of capri which i've learned is not capri it's capri Mm. um if if yeah if anybody who says capri that they haven't been there because the locals all call it. We Capri. all learned it from the Capri Sun but, commercials growing up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I think probably my highlight was 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 Capri. Mm-hmm. That that day we spent at Capri and went up. We went up the uh, the chairlift all the way to the top of the mountain mm-hmm. and just looking over that ocean and having a drink and a cigar up there. <laughs> it it was just a moment, man. It was a moment. That's great. Are there any places that like? You're not sure you'll make it to, um, but you really would like to make it to that are high on your list? Yeah, that's a good question. We're going, uh, Bevan and I are going to um, Croatia and Greece. We're going to stop in Dublin, Ireland. And those are places that I've been wanting to see. My son and I are, are talking about, um, he's, a, I, he's a, a golfer, and I used to be when I could grip a golf club. Mm-hmm. Um and we've always talked about going to Scotland. And Head over so to Trump links. After, <laughs> no, don't say that name. You're gonna delete that name out of this thing. Aren't you? <laughs> You're like throwing f bombs around. You're like, don't, don't bring the he don't who shall not be named. Name. <laughs> <laughs> no, we talked about a 
you know, about a day after I told him about the diagnosis, he called back and he's so good. He lives in New York mm. City and he and his wife and he said, Dad, let's where where do you want to go? What do you want to do? Let's take some trips. Mm. You know, he just embraced it and and just said, you know, let me let me we'll take trips and go and do what you want to do. And so we talked about a Scotland trip just to see St. Andrews and that would be my my year is actually 2019 is actually getting really full mm-hmm. and and I've learned if I overdo it I get I just get exhausted mm-hmm. and so I've got to pace myself so we may not get there this year but that would be a trip I think next year um that we would want to do and I'm hoping that that I've still got enough uh, mobility to do that because that would be a pretty special trip. Let me. I want to ask up a harder question as as someone on the caregiver side of these kinds of experiences to some extent. And, and feel free if you don't want to speak for her, but I'm curious. You mentioned that your your girlfriend. You said about five months or so. Uh, this is a pretty yeah. hard thing to to roll up into five months into a relationship. Uh, how has that How has that been? How has she been able to manage with that? Yeah. That's going to be a that's going to be a tough one. Um it's been uh, one of the more incredible experiences of my life to um <sighs> to find her at this stage has been unbelievable. And she just um she did not flinch, she didn't run from it. She just we knew we were in love and we did not want to, she just says, you know, what, what choice did I have? I, I, if I walk away from this guy, I'll be walking away from something that I want to be involved in. So I have to embrace it. And, and she has, and she's, she's a warrior, man. She gets on and researches and digs up everything we can Mm -hmm. dig up and, 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 and is so, um, incredibly supportive and and strong, and I worry more about her than mm-hmm. she, because I know what I know what we both know what this is and where it's going to go, and she's the one that's going to be left high and dry when I'm gone, and I worry about that for her, and she does too. I mean, the reality of it sometimes just is overwhelming, um, and it, but we still just love the days we have and we're living this relationship is beautiful and we're and we're living it every day and making the most of it and and trying to just deal with the harsh reality of what of what's going to come and and how it's going to go but mm-hmm. she's embraced it man she didn't she didn't run from it she's not hiding from it she's a warrior mm-hmm. That's that's wonderful. I'm 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 definitely familiar with what you were describing there in terms of feeling like how could you do anything else? Um does it feel Yeah. I mean, I guess in moments like this it probably does, but like on a day-to-day basis, does it always feel real to you or is there like times where it, you know, you, you sort of slip back into the normal ways of thinking and then you have to remind yourself that it's real? Yeah, that's the hard part because on the, you know, if you were to, if we were to meet for a drink, you, you would not know immediately there's something wrong with me. I look, I look fairly healthy. I look fairly normal. If you watched me eat or drink, you'd notice my hands don't function well, and 
And um, so er everyday life, I look, I look and act fairly normal. I, I drive and I go do things. I go to stores and I, I, do, I manage myself pretty well. But there are those things and, and those occasions that arise in the course of daily living where it, I'm just reminded like a, a harsh slap in the face that I've got this thing. And then at night probably is the worst or in the morning when you wake mm -hmm. up or when you're laying in bed because the, the disease is attacking my muscles and I get muscle cramps a lot. I get uh, my muscles quiver in my arms and chest and stuff. So you'll be laying there and you'll you'll be feeling all this shit going on in your body and it's just like there's an alien in there trying to de de destroy mm -hmm. you and it's just this ever-present reminder that you, you've got something wrong with you. Do you ever feel anger at your body like it's turned against you in some way? Oh, yeah, yeah, there's no doubt. It's Bevan and I were talking the other night and it's like saying it's just like this fucking monster that's devouring me and neither one of us can defeat it mm -hmm. in this... It's just this thing that's coming after us, and and there's anger that comes up, and and we've had a couple of fights, and it's all because this this anger that we both feel is just this helplessness, mm -hmm. and 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 you just you, you want to do something, and you don't, you, there's nothing you can do, and it's just a it's incredibly helpless feeling. You mentioned that your insurance is through the exchange. I'm curious what, what issues, if any, you face in terms of getting mental health care during all of this. Is any of that covered? Are you seeing therapists? Are you suggesting any <laughs> mental health, Aaron? Is that <laughs> I think everyone needs mental health care, especially uh, no. with you know certain individuals around in the world. Yeah, I do too. Um, actually, there's there's a thing called the ALS Clinic that. I'm enrolled in at Vanderbilt in Nashville. I was living I live in Nashville essentially, but I'm here in Charlotte with Bevan and so I'm actually was talking to there's a there's a neurologist at Duke in North Carolina that um has an ALS clinic and he's a very progressive forward thinking neurologist uh unlike my one at Vanderbilt who's not forward thinking, I'll put it mm -hmm. kindly. Uh and so with the ALS clinic, though, there are social workers and mental health. There's all the different components medically, like physical therapists, uh, pulmonologists, people, all the specialties that have to do with this disease are encompassed within that thing. So there is mental health uh, care that comes along with that, which is a good thing. So they've, they've provided that. Now, I don't, I don't know how extensive it is. I haven't actually use that yet mm -hmm. uh, but I will so uh, it's something that's definitely available though mm. um, along those same lines I believe you talked a little bit on one of the other shows about thoughts regarding euthanasia um, and some some attempts to actively plan to take control on that side of front has your view about euthanasia changed as a result of your diagnosis did it change as a result of your switch to atheism have you have you had you thought about that issue in particular before the diagnosis um as a christian i never thought about it if i did it probably was i probably had a view a negative view mm -hmm. of it because you know you can't you can't take you can't play god as they say um, although we do it with medical science, yes, because God's day, so good at it. Why would we ever get a turn? <laughs> right. 
God's got this. Um, God's the kid at the so, sleepover won't let anyone take around. That's yeah. right. Exactly. Um, but as an atheist, I, I obviously, everything shifted in regard to, um, for me, all, all my, all my ideas about things shifted 180 as an atheist. And I, cause when you take God out of the picture, you look at things rationally and, and humanly. And so I, I've always felt like that, um, people with terminal illnesses should be able to decide their own fate. Now that was in theory because that wasn't something that I was dealing with. Um, but now I mm-hmm. am. And so, uh, I have, a, I have a very strong opinion about that now. Um, but w- the problem we've got is that our laws in this country, as you know, most of them or many of them are undergirded by evangelical Christian ideology. Sure. Uh, and so, you know, this whole right to die, um, death with dignity and several states are passing it. But if you look at those laws, they're ridiculous. And there are so many conditions and so many prerequisites that they're almost useless. Um, for instance, you've got to have a doctor's uh, d- designation that you're going to die within six months, period. It can be no deviation from that. Well, by then, for me, I'm completely incapacitated. Mm-hmm. And I'm bedridden, and everyone's having to do everything for me. And that's those six months, that six-month window that they've given me is bullshit. <laughs> Not only that, you, you have to have three months, uh, you have to do a three-month uh, preview and then a, come back three months later and before you can even get uh, approved for it. And then you've got to be a resident in that state for two years. So there's just so many conditions on that that it's, uh, uh, in, my, in my case, is, is, is basically useless. Um, but I've got, uh, there's organizations out there that will help you end your life on your terms, in your own way, whenever you feel like it's right. Now, that doesn't have to be done in a state where death with dignity is legal, because the reality is that taking one's own life is not illegal. And so I will, I'm looking into that, and I don't have to decide when that is now, but at some point when I decide I've had enough and I'm I'm not functional at the level where I want to be, and I'm too much of a drain on everyone else in terms of their time and energy and too much of a financial drain, then I will say, okay, that's enough, mm-hmm. and, and and I will I will pull the plug, so to speak. Yeah, I think that makes sense, and it's a, it's a challenging thing, it seems like, to figure out, you know, do, do you wait until you're past the point where you can do it yourself because you could still enjoy parts of life, but you would then need someone else to administer it for you. And then are you sort of burdening someone else with killing you and putting their legality at risk? That's the big question. (sighs) Yep. That's, that's the hard part of this thing. So that's so much to wrestle with. You've, you've talked a lot about anger. I'm curious, do you still have fear is that, I mean, I have to imagine there's still sometimes that, but like, how does that come around? Does it, yeah. Yeah, fear is, um, fear is just a weird thing. I, 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 I've never, and I've had, I just never have been a fearful person. I don't even know. I mean, I mean, obviously somebody jumps out and scares you. You're afraid, you know, startled or whatever. 
but I don't sit around and, and fear, uh, fear things. And so I've been asked this before, do I fear death? And I really, and I hate to say, you know, oh, I don't fear anything. I don't want to sound like, you know, bravado and all that shit, but I, I really just don't feel like I am. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm afraid of not living. I'm afraid of wasting my moments, wasting my days and squandering the life I have left. So that's, I wouldn't even say I'm, that's a fear thing. That's just an awareness. Mm-hmm. But the idea of going to sleep and not waking up, I mean, that's not that fearful. That sounds kind of nice, you know? Is that what you think <laughs> in some happens ways. in your in your view at this point? Yeah, yeah. I don't think there's anything on the other mm-hmm. side. And if there is, uh, I don't think we'd be aware of it. You know, I don't think there's an awareness of, oh, now here I am. Uh, oh, I was there and now mm-hmm. I'm here. I don't, I just can't, I can't imagine that sort of thing. It's beyond my comprehension. There's no continuity. If it, right. If there is, then I'll be fine with it. Um, but at this point, I, I think to think about that a whole lot is to waste a lot of energy and emotion on something that we have no control over anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I certainly disagree with the Christians and and their fetish for the afterlife because that that is there's so, such focus on heaven and hell that they lose sight of what's here now, which is the one life we know we have. Mm-hmm. I've I've asked um, former ex um, religious individuals before this kind of question that I know some people struggle with. I'm curious if it's a little bit of an easier question for you now. Do do you feel like looking back? that religion was an, a, a substantial net negative um, in your life? Do you feel any kind of anger or frustration towards the time that you may feel like you had, you spent on religious activities? Yeah, a great deal of that, actually. I feel like I was duped. I feel like I was tricked and lied to, um, wasted a lot of my life. I, I, uh, regret is a word I try to avoid, mm-hmm. but it's it's there because I regret uh, uh, getting off into that, you know, it, it, I had, I did the best I could with what I had and that's what we all have to do, you know, mm-hmm. um, do, do the best you can until you know better and then do better. <laughs> and, and, and that's all we can do. But looking back, I really wish I hadn't gone down that road because I think it's a, a dangerous road. I think it's, uh, uh, it, it hinders the advance of humanity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm definitely sympathetic. Um, so for those of us who know that we are going to die sometime, but don't have quite as clear a, an, an expiration date, how do you do? You have any advice or any thoughts about, um, or something that you wish someone might have told you along the lines of like how best to balance the kinds of things that you are trying now to rebalance during this time. Yeah, I mean, it's it can be a tired cliche to say carpe diem and and to make the most of your moments and uh, you know yeah. it, it it can sound li- to live in the moment and be present. Those can sound very clicheish and and they can be because it's it's very it's not easy to do. You've got bills to pay, you've got obligations, you've got schedules and deadlines and responsibilities. It's easier for me, someone like me who's retired, just you know. I don't have to do anything uh, and it, and it doesn't matter because mm-hmm. I'm going to die. So what does anything matter? You know, so it's easy for me to say, Oh, don't worry about anything. Just live life. Go sit on the beach and look at the ocean and meditate. 
Well, okay, that's just not realistic for everyday people that are living everyday lives. But I do believe that we can be present and be aware of the moments that are happening around us. And as I told one friend recently, just make room, make room for life. Mm -hmm. Uh, Pause, uh, linger a little longer. Don't feel the pressure or the stress that that life wants to wants to smother you with. Mm -hmm. Just just step back. Take a take a breath. Look around you. Appreciate what you have. Appreciate the people in your life. And if you don't have the people in your life that you want, make the fucking changes to get them there and don't settle for what you don't want. And that's the main thing I would say to people. Make the changes, have the courage to make the changes you need to make to make yourself happy. Mm-hmm. Um, you've mentioned that uh, you have difficulty talking to your family as a result of the religious estrangement issues. Are there specific things, if you had the opportunity, that you would want to convey to them directly? Um, for the um, I would, yeah. I mean, my it's most of my family. Um, my daughters, my brother, my mom, my sister, they're evangelicals. And so their response to me or their reaction to my diagnosis has been markedly different than my atheist friends in mm-hmm. that they tend to avoid me. They tend to not know what to do with me. They tend to um, just kind of uh, back away from it. And all I would say to them is, you know, first of all, let go of this <laughs> Let go of this religion that's keeping you bound um, and live life in the moment, live life in the present tense, because that's what we know we have. Um, But they know how I feel about that. And that's not a conversation that we'll ever have unless they unless they come around and change their viewpoint. But nonetheless, I would just I would just encourage them, you know, don't don't run from life and don't run from death. Just be present. It's it's not that it's it's not a monster. It's just life. Yeah, I think that's a, a maybe a good place for us to uh, to round things out here. Do you have any final um, things you'd like to share before we go to making the void in this case diable? Yeah, no, I think we've covered it pretty well. Um, I just uh, you know people that want I love hearing from people that have heard the podcast or read blog posts or whatever that if it, you know, if, if it inspires them or they want to contact me, I love meeting people in person that uh, that I've talked to online or uh, any any context I've had. I love just sitting down and and hugging someone's neck and looking them in the eye and talking about life. So in my travels, if there's somewhere that I'm going to be that someone of your listeners is there, I'd love to meet them and they can my. Uh, my Facebook page is Dave Warnock Dying Out Loud, um, and I've got my schedule on there, and it'll be updated, you know, regularly. So I'd love to connect with folks. Great. Well, let's um, let's talk making the void diable here, right? Usually we do making the void livable, and people give us something. But in this case, right, I'm I'm curious what like you've talked a lot about various things that are helping in terms of family and travel. Is there anything? sort of that people might not initially think of that has particularly been helpful or meaningful for you? To make the void livable and diable? Uh, Cigars (laughs) and and bourbon. Yeah, all right. 
a man after my own heart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just I just think life is precious and life is beautiful and life is brief and whatever we can do as humans to savor the moments that that come our way and make the most of mm-hmm. them and be be aware of them and and call them out uh, that's that's the essence of life so i think that is making life making the void livable and dieable because if we live our best life when it comes time to die we won't regret anything we're going to say okay i did the best i could i'm ready to go mm-hmm. along with that bourbon and um cigars have any of your doctors pointed you towards, since you mentioned um, keeping your weight up, uh, things like medicinal marijuana? Well, my doctors haven't suggested it, but I've got several friends. Who <laughs> I sure mean, you've got enough atheist got a, friends, right? One of them has got to have tried it. I, oh, I've got no supply. I've got oils. I've got gels. <laughs> I've got I've got all kinds of stuff in my little cabinet. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least you got to see a little bit of that in the world, right? Absolutely. No, life's beautiful. I, I'm not in any hurry to leave, so I'm hoping I can stick around as long as I can to make the most of the moments that life brings our way. Did psychedelics ever appeal to you? Or did you have a change of thoughts about that sort of thing as a result of this? I've got some friends who are who are um, getting me. They're going to get connected. We're going to do some shrooms uh-huh. and, and some LSD. Um, so I don't know when that's... But yeah, I'm, I'd love to experience all that stuff. I mean, to me, life is about experiences and moments, and if those will be good moments, let's let's do it. That's great. I, is that what you like? Those? I mean, I have at times experienced altered states of consciousness. As an as a teacher, I'm not allowed to like dive too far into that without getting myself fired. But uh, you know, as a philosopher right. of mind, I would be um, amit, remiss not to explore the bounds of consciousness a little bit. Um, Absolutely. So, but I'm I'm glad to hear that you're getting to do that sort of stuff. I mean, I I found that like, you know, whatever psychedelics I was able to engage with before Lou got sick, I've been very hesitant to go back to those afterwards. I feel like I am carrying a lot of baggage as a result of that that experience. Right? I'm not I'm not traveling light, as we like to say. Um, and so it makes me a little right. nervous. But you know, I. I I think that there is a fascinating intimate connection between the states that one achieves in certain with certain psychedelics and things like death. So mm-hmm. the, um, and she's doing, she's doing okay. Lydia. Yeah. I mean, it's still, an, you know, it's an ongoing struggle dealing with insurance yeah. and, and healthcare and all those sorts of things. But like in terms of physically, she's doing great. So, are you taking care of yourself as a caregiver? Uh, you know, as best I can. I um, I'm, I'm lucky yeah. enough to have uh, an, a job that I very much enjoy, so it makes it a lot easier. Um, mm-hmm. So, well, thank you so much, Dave, for coming on. Do you want to let folks? You, you already mentioned your Facebook um, page. Is there anywhere else where folks might be able to find you? Well, if you go to that page, I, I think the links to Instagram and and Twitter and all the other things out there in the Everse are there. And uh, any connection that folks want to make, um, I'd love to. I'd love to have. Well, that's it. wonderful. Maybe we'll get you over into the uh, Philosophers in Space Facebook group because uh, we use that for Embrace the Void as well. And um, there's often a lot of responses to episodes over there. So, yeah, add me right. in. That'd be All right. Great. Well, thank you so much.
Thanks, Aaron. Good talking to you, buddy. Thank you so much to everyone who makes this show possible. Uh, thank you to my editor, Brian Ziegenhagen, and to GW for the music. And thank you to all of our listeners, and especially our $20 and up patrons, including Jude Law's Canadian accent in Existence made my pussy throb, the person who controls the spice controls the void, volunteer with Camp Quest this summer, campquest.org, Philosophy Book Club will live again, Jesse Rabinowitz, and Brenda Goodman. And thanks especially to our top-tier patron, Dave Maslich. Y'all, you are so amazing. Thank you for being so patient while I got the show caught up, and I promise that I will get back on patron rewards very soon. Um, if you would like to get more voidiness in your life, check us out on Twitter at ETVPod and subscribe to uh, my other show, Philosophers in Space. And also come join the Philosophers in Space Facebook group, which also serves as the Embrace the Void group. I promise you won't regret it. If you want to support the show, you can find us at patreon.com slash embrace the void. And remember, you are the void and the void is you. Mm-hmm.